Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would please. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been studying 1 Corinthians now for a couple of months, and I've told you in just about every sermon, at the beginning of each sermon, that the book of 1 Corinthians is a study about problems. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems, and the book of 1 Corinthians tells us how to deal with a lot of different church problems. The problem I want to talk to you about today is the problem of immorality in the church. And I want to tell you today that you may need to stick a pin in yourself to see if you are really here and if you're really awake, because when I'm done preaching today, you're going to wonder, did he really preach that on Sunday morning? I'm going to preach this on Sunday morning. We're going to talk about immorality in the church. Corinth was a very wicked city. Of all the cities in the Roman Empire, it was famous for its perversions, sexual perversions, and many different things that went on there, deviant lifestyles that you found in this city. Corinth was such a bad place that if you went anywhere in the Roman Empire and you wanted to describe a person, say a very loose, immoral woman, what you would do is refer to her as a Corinthian girl. That's the kind of reputation that they had in the world. When the people at Corinth were saved, they had to learn to give up this immoral lifestyle. In our churches today, I'm afraid that we're faced many times with issues of great immorality. Almost daily, I'm confronted with issues where people in the church or people who want to become members of the church may be involved in some kinds of sexual immorality. We have lots of people that are living together without marriage. And we have to ask the question, what do you do when people want to become a part of the church or when they're in the church and they get involved in different types of immoral sins and things like uh, living together when they're not married? Well, the Bible teaches us, I think, that we can't take them into the church because the Scripture preaches against and teaches against fornication and adultery. Those are sins that cannot be tolerated. And really, I wouldn't even baptize a person until they have confessed and said that they are repenting of that sin. And that's because the Bible uh, tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. We, we have a job in this world to deliver the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And we have a commission that Christ has given. And we can't carry out Christ's commission when people in the church are living in open and rebellious sin. Now today, I have to talk about a a very unpleasant subject. Do we tolerate sin in the church, or do we discipline different types of immorality? If you're new to Berean Baptist Church, here's one of the things you'll find out about us, is that we believe in teaching the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so when we come to scriptures that are difficult for us and things that we don't like to talk about, we don't skip over them. We go on and we preach exactly what the Word of God says. Now, here a week before Christmas, we happen to come to our study in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's a difficult subject to deal with, and you may think totally inappropriate for this time of year. But I think any time that we are considering God's word and we're considering how to live as Christians and what we are to be in our lives, it's always appropriate for a pastor to preach against sin. So 1 Corinthians in this chapter is difficult for us. Uh, Some churches practice what you might call kangaroo exegesis. That means when they come to scriptures they don't like, they just skip and they hop over them and they don't talk about them. 
There are two preachers that attended the same preaching conference, and both of these preachers were preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And one asked the other, what did you do when you came to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? And he said, I skipped it. We're not going to skip it. It's in the Word of God, and we believe that God wants us to preach it today. I'd like you to take your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. As we read, there, there may be some things that you don't understand as we go through it, but we're going to explain the Scriptures in the, in the sermon today. Uh, verse number 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, I just ask you that you would speak to us through the message this morning very difficult subject that we have to talk about and one that people really don't want to hear about. But Lord, we feel that this is the message that you would have for us today. Speak to our hearts and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is a very unpleasant topic. In 1983, there was a lady who was a member of a church in Oklahoma, and this lady uh, was living with another man. There was a woman in the church who became concerned about it, and so she decided to go to this lady and talk to her about it and advise her that her sin was against God and that she really needed to do something about this in order to get back into fellowship with the Lord. Well, when she talked to the lady about this, the lady refused to repent of her sin. So this concerned church member then went to her pastor and to the elders of the church, and she asked them to come with her to speak to this lady once again. And according to the scriptures that we have in the book of Matthew, they were carrying out what the scriptures said to do. So the pastor and the elders of the church and this lady uh, went to talk to this woman who is in sin and to deal with her on the issue once again. But still, she refused to repent of the sin. And then, according to the scriptures that we have in Matthew, they took this matter before the church and they were going to expel her from the membership of the church. Well, the lady became very angry about this, and and she thought 
And she said that the church had no right to meddle in her personal affairs. So she filed a lawsuit against the church. She asked for $1 million because of what the church had done. Now, amazingly, the court agreed with her. And they didn't give her a million dollars, but they granted her $400,000 in punitive damages. Well, the case was a court, uh, uh, appealed to the Oklahoma State Supreme Court, and the court overthrew the lower court's decision. And well, they should have, because uh, no court in the United States has the right to tell a church what it's to do in an ecclesiastical matter. Well, that brings up the question then, does the church have the right or the responsibility to deal with members of the church who openly and continually live in sin? I believe the Bible tells us that we do. And I believe the Bible demands that we take care of sin problems in our church. And I believe 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is very clear about it, and so we're going to talk about that today. But what we really do have to understand about this is that when we take an action like this as a church, it is not an action of judgment, it's not an act of revenge, but Paul very clearly tells us that this is to be an action that's taken out of grief and out of love. It's concern for that person's spiritual welfare. So we're going to notice today how this sin developed in the Corinthian church. First of all, we're going to talk about the evil report of sin. And verse number one gives us that report. It says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Now, one thing we need to remember here is that Paul is not at the Corinthian church at this time. He's turned the work over to somebody else. He started that church, but now he's traveling to other places and he's starting new churches, preaching the gospel in other areas. But here is a report that comes to him of a terrible sin taking place in the Corinthian church. And so that's what Paul addresses. Now, first of all, from reading the scriptures, what we learn here is that this was a persistent problem. Here is a problem going on. It's an ongoing sin, and this sin had not been dealt with. There was a man in the church who had an illicit relationship with his father's wife. Now, that doesn't mean that it was his mother, because that would be a very bizarre form of incest. So it's not talking about that. But this man was actually having an affair with his stepmother. And Paul addresses this. And the language of the Greek here suggests that this was a continual problem. It's ongoing. This man was consistently involved in this sin. And right when Paul is writing the letter, this was taking place in that church. But not only was he continuing in this sin, he was committing this sin without fear of retribution. And he was flaunting this sin in front of the whole church. Well, this type of sin was so awful that Paul said even the pagans would not enter into this kind of sin. They don't allow it. And as bad as the Roman government was in issues of morality, they wouldn't even allow such a thing as this to go on. But this is going on in the Corinthian church. So it's not a situation where this man committed this sin one time, then he repented of that sin and got right with God. Here's a case where this man would not repent of the sin. He wouldn't stop doing it. But that's only part of the problem. The sexual immorality that he was involved in, was, that was bad enough. But there's another problem here. There was an attitude of acceptance. Everybody knew about this, and the church was tolerating it. Everybody knew that it was going on. It wasn't a matter of secret gossip in the church. This man openly was, was committing the sin, and the church was acceptant of it. They were accepting this man's wicked behavior 
And there are many people who believe that this man was even a leader in the Corinthian church. So the attitude of the church at Corinth was one that many churches have today. We're tolerant. It doesn't make any difference what kind of lifestyle you live. Whatever you choose, whatever immorality that you want to get involved in, that's okay. We're a tolerant church, and you can come and you can worship with us, and we're not going to say anything about that. And that's the attitude of many churches in society today. It's an attitude of tolerance. And we have really gotten mixed up on this because we've got the idea that tolerance is somehow Christian. It's all right because that's the Christian thing to do. And so you have people in churches today who know absolutely nothing at all about Christianity. They just have an idea that this is the Christian thing to do. And so they're going to tell you that when you refuse to permit sin in the church and you tolerate it, they're going to tell you that you are being unchristian about it. Who has the right to determine what's Christian? Wouldn't you say that the founder of the church would be one who would have the right to say what is a Christian act and what is not? Wouldn't you think that the one who inspired men to write the Holy Scriptures and gave them the words of God, that 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 person and those people would not be able to tell us what's Christian? And what about Paul? Isn't he the consummate Christian? Of course he is. And Paul writes here that sin is intolerable in the church. And he tells us if something is not done about this, then the whole church will eventually suffer because of it. So Paul tells them, you're not supposed to be boasting about this. You're not to say how all-inclusive that you are and that you can tolerate fornication. Tolerance is not a Christian virtue, not tolerance of sin. Now, we need to understand something here, that the word fornication in the Bible, it includes all different types of sexual sin. We're not just talking about adultery. It covers that, but it also covers other sins. It relates to premarital sex. It relates to incest, to homosexuality, transsexuality. All of these different things, those are all covered under the biblical word fornication. And Paul says you should not approve of this. You should not speak to people about how open and tolerant that you are. But really, as a church, you need to be angry And you need to be brokenhearted when such sins enter into the body. So here's a church that has an ongoing, persistent sin, and the church is in acceptance of it. And so Paul says, that's wrong. You need to do something about sin in the church. Now, the second thing we want to notice here is the expected response to sin. Because the Bible does expect, and God does expect us to respond to sin, and the scriptures give us clear direction what we're supposed to do. And so when there is open, continual, evident sin on the part of a church member, what is it that we're called on to do? Well, we're called on to exercise discipline. We're to use discipline. So the Bible gives us then, next, the process of discipline. There's a scriptural process for us to follow when a person gets involved in immorality. Now, if we weren't supposed to do this, then the Bible would not give us a process to follow. It wouldn't even talk about it. But we've been given a process that is formulated by none other than the master himself. Jesus is the one who gave us the process to deal with sin in our church. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to look at the process that Jesus gives us. They're very, there's a very rigid procedure that we are to follow. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to look at verse number 15 first. 
And be aware that this relates to personal reconciliation, but it also has to do with what happens in the church when there is sin. Matthew chapter 18, if you look at verse number 15, Jesus is speaking. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That's step number one. Step number two is in verse number 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That's step two. Step number three comes in verse number 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. And so there are steps that we are to follow for reconciliation. So if you have somebody in the church that's living in open sin and you know about that, the very best thing for you to do is to go to that person and secretly and privately and in a very loving manner, you're to confront that person. And you say to them, friend, is this true? Have you done this? then what you need to do is to, you need to admonish them to confess that sin and get right with God. Now, let me caution you about this, church members, and that is you are not Mr. Detective in this church. And it's not your responsibility to go out and seek and find everybody's sin and with glee that you could announce it to everybody and you can tell everybody what they've done wrong. If you go to a person like that in that attitude, it's the wrong attitude to have. Here is an attitude that you come to a person in brokenheartedness and you come and you lovingly confront that person. But if you know about it, you're not to ignore it. If you know about this, you want to help that person and you want them to repent of their sin. And so you go and you talk to them. But then the Bible says that if the person doesn't hear you, if they won't listen, if they won't repent of that sin, then you go and you get two or three more people. And these are godly people that you choose out. These are people that you're sure can keep the confidentiality of the situation. They're not going to pass it around. They're not going to make gossip out of it. And you take two or three more people with you and you go and talk to that person. You ask them again to confess that sin and to forsake the sin. But what if that doesn't work? Now, hopefully, you've gained that person then. They do repent of the sin. But what if it doesn't work? Well, Jesus says that this is the next step that you are to take. If the person does not respond, if they don't repent, then he says you are to take this matter to the church. Well, what does it mean to take a matter to the church? Does that mean that you come before the church and you bring out all the gory details of what people have done and make everybody aware of it? No. You go on the advice of these people that you have asked to help you speak to the person and you present it to the church that here is a person that needs to be removed from our membership. Well, then what does it mean for us to withdraw fellowship from a person? Well, when a person refuses to repent of their sin, they are not showing the characteristics of a person who is born again. If you will not repent of your sin, if that person doesn't repent and confess and forsake their sin, then they don't evidence that they've ever been born again, that they're really saved people. And so the Bible says, Jesus said, we are to treat that person as a publican and a heathen. What does that mean? That means you treat them as an unbeliever. How do you treat unbelievers? You try to win unbelievers to Christ. And so if you have a person that will not confess and repent of sin 
then you treat that person just like an unbeliever. Now, I want you to notice a very troubling verse in our text of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse number 5, if you would, please, because this is a very troubling verse to many people. It says, To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Something I want you to understand. When you become a member of the Lord's church, that is a very special privilege. When you become a member of the Lord's church, God puts a special hedge of protection around you as one of his people being in the church. Now, when Paul talks here about delivering one to Satan, and when you have to remove a person from membership, what this is saying is that the hedge of protection is removed. You don't have that special protection any longer. And when Paul talks about delivering this person to Satan, what he means is that the hedge of protection is removed and now God is able to even use Satan. God can use Satan to chastise or to to inflict things upon his people. Now see, what God is trying to, and what Paul is trying to show us here is that we have to be very careful in this relationship that we have that, that we, we don't want to come to a place where the devil is unleashed upon this and God uses him to chastise his people. Well, does that mean that a Christian loses his salvation? No. No Christian can ever lose his salvation. But it does mean that Satan is able to treat you in ways that God would not otherwise allow. And that's because that protection has been removed. And so you don't want to find yourself in that position. If you get into a place where you're guilty of sin in the church, you repent of that sin and you draw close to the Lord. So that's the process in this. But we don't have just a cold mechanical process. We don't expel people from membership and then just leave it at that. There's a goal in mind here. There's something we're trying to accomplish. So the next thing is the purpose of discipline. Why do we do this? Why does the church, why would they deal with the sin in the church in this way? Well, there are actually two main reasons. And reason number one is for the purification of the body. We're a body of Christ here. And this is to purify the body of Christ. It's to keep Christ's church holy. Now, verse number six, Paul uses the example of leaven. You know what leaven means? Leaven is yeast, just, just like common yeast. If you're, if you're ever baked any bread or know anything about baking bread, when you put yeast into a lump of dough, what happens? The yeast begins to permeate that whole lump of dough, and the whole lump of dough is affected by that yeast. Now, this is what Paul is saying. He says, sin in the church is like leaven. It's like yeast. It, it inflicts, it causes sorrow, it causes pain, it infiltrates, and it affects the whole body of the church. Just like that saying that everybody knows, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. And this is true in a church. We even have an example of this in the Old Testament. I was preaching about it a few weeks ago as we're dealing with, uh, with Joshua on Sunday nights. And you remember when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River and they were going into the promised land, there was this huge fortified city of Jericho that was standing right in front of them. It was an impregnable fortress. Israel had no way to breach the walls of Jericho. It was stopping their progress. They could not continue with that city standing in their way. And so God had to bring a miracle about it. And so he caused the walls of Jericho to fall down. 
But before he did that, he told every person in Israel, and he told Joshua, he said, you tell the people, when they go in to take the city, they are not to touch any of the spoils of the battle. Everything in the city belongs to me. So the, the gold and the silver and the iron, everything is there, is mine, and I want you to put that into my treasury. But there was a man named Achan among the Israelites, and he went in when the walls fell down, and he saw some wonderful things there. He saw some gold and some silver, some garments, Babylonian garments, the Bible says, some very nice linens. And he decided that he wanted those things for himself. So he took them and he dug a hole and he hid those things in his tent. And he thought, well, that's the end of that. Nobody knows about it. These are mine. Nobody knows about it. Well, the Bible says that at the next battle, Joshua sent his men up against a little tiny town by the name of Ai. An insignificant spot in the way. He sent his soldiers up against Ai. And the men of Ai killed 36 of Joshua's soldiers. And so the men came running back to Joshua. And they said, Joshua, what happened here? We were victorious when we fought this great uh, fortified city of Jericho. We won the battle there. How is it that we lose against this little bitty town of Ai? And Joshua didn't know. He wondered about himself. So he fell down on his face before the Lord and began to pray. And he said, God, what's wrong here? And God said, Joshua, why are you praying? Get up off of your face and do something about sin in the camp. Someone has sinned against me. They've taken something that doesn't belong to them. It belongs to me. And you have to do something about it. And that's what they did. They went tribe by tribe. They went clan by clan. They went household by household until they finally narrowed it down to Achan, the man who had committed the sin. And the Bible says that they took Achan and they stoned him and all of his family. Now, sometimes you as a Christian, you may get down on your knees and you may say, God, why aren't you blessing my life? God, why why don't I have you in my life? Why are things going wrong for me? What's the problem here, God, that you're not fellowshipping with me? And God says to you, you have got to get the sin out of your life. If you want fellowship with me, then you must remove that sin. And you know this is exactly what God does with an entire church. When there is sin in the church and the church allows immorality to go on, then God will withhold his blessings from the church. And so God says, get rid of the sin, and then I'll bless you again. Now, notice in verse number seven, if you would, please, that Paul says, purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now, here, he brings up the subject of Passover, and he says, Christ is our Passover. Now, remember, before the Israelites could ever celebrate Passover, God said, you must remove all of the leaven from your houses. Get all the yeast out of your houses. You know what it was symbolic of? Symbolic of sin. The leaven represents sin. And so God says, before you can celebrate my Passover, you have to get all of the sin out. Confess it, repent of it, get rid of it. Now, thank the Lord for this, that Christ's blood is able to cleanse us from all of our sins. And when we repent and we confess of our sin, confess the sin, then God purifies the church once again. And now God can have fellowship with us once again, and then he can bless us again. So the purpose of discipline is for the purification of the church body. But there's also another important purpose. We also discipline for the restoration of the believer. 
We're trying to restore this person back to fellowship with God. And so we practice church discipline, not because we want to be mean and ugly to people, not, not because we think that here we are in the church and we're such great people, we never sin, we never do anything wrong. And all of you people out there, you are just a bunch of vile sinners. No, that's not true at all. All of us are sinners. What we're talking about here is immorality. We're talking about persistent sins that people commit. And we want to discipline a person in order to restore that person to the fellowship of the body. Now, if you look in Galatians chapter 6, we find a scripture about this. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. Isn't that true? We're the only army that shoots its wounded. When somebody falls, when somebody makes a mistake, when they get into sin, we are too quick to jump on people with both feet to to just stomp them into the ground. But Galatians gives us a totally different picture of how we treat somebody who's fallen into sin. It says, brethren, Galatians 6 verse 1, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. And so the purpose of church discipline is not to hurt that person. It's not to ruin their reputation. The purpose is to restore them to fellowship. So if they're living in sin and they refuse to repent and they refuse to confess, the best thing that you can possibly do for a person spiritually, the best thing you can do is to exclude them from the fellowship of the church so they recognize how terrible that that sin is. Tolerating sin will never help anyone. It doesn't help the church and it doesn't help the offender. It destroys church purity. It hurts the individual. And that's because no one ever calls upon them to confess that sin and get back in fellowship with God. They don't understand how detrimental that sin is at the fellowship. So we have here an evil report of sin. We have an expected response to sin. And now thirdly, the expelling removal of sin. Now today we can talk about the desire to remove sin. Theoretically, we can theorize about the thing all day long and talk about it and all agree. Yes, it's the right thing to do. When you find out there's immorality in church, get rid of that sin. And we can theorize and talk about it. But here's the thing about it. We all know that sin is not intangible. Sin manifests itself. And so how are you going to get rid of sin in the church? There's only one way you can do that, and that's to do something with the offender. You have to deal with the offender. Now, this is what the Word of God says, that there's a clear command here from both Jesus and from Paul, that when you have a persistent offender who is immoral, you expel that person from the church. Most of you probably heard of excommunication. If you have a Roman Catholic background, you've probably heard of excommunication. And in the Roman Catholic Church, when they excommunicate a person, that consigns that person to hell. As Baptists, we don't use the term excommunication. More commonly, we call this uh, excluding the person from the church, and that's because the connotation is very different. We don't have the ability to send people to hell, and neither would we even attempt to try to send people to hell. We can't do that. And so when you expel a person from membership, that doesn't mean we send them to hell, and it doesn't mean that they're lost. We're trying to restore them. So we call that excluding the person, and what it actually means is to prevent fellowship in the church. And so when we exclude a person, we need to remember that the person is removed from fellowship. And if a person is removed from fellowship, this means that you no longer go out and have a sandwich with that person. You no longer go out and 
carry on things just like you did before. You don't invite that person over to your home with the same kind of fellowship that they had when you walked with them in the spirit. Is that being unkind to a person? Not at all. When you invite someone into your home and that person is living in sin, what you are doing is putting your stamp of approval upon what they're doing. You're saying your wicked lifestyle is all right with me. This doesn't mean that you don't love them. It doesn't mean that you don't pray for them. But it does mean that you can't carry on business as usual. You can't maintain the status quo. And so you have to tell that person, I cannot fellowship with you until you repent of the sin and get this right with God. Well, one of the things that that involves is partaking in the Lord's Supper. If you look at verse number 8, Paul says, Therefore, let us keep the feast. And what he's talking about there is the Lord's Supper. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so what he's saying is that when you remove a person from the fellowship of the church who's in this sin, now you can start to take the Lord's Supper again in sincerity and truth. And that's because the sin has been removed from the body. Now understand something. In the New Testament, they didn't have church roles like we have today. In my office on my computer, I have an Excel file that has all the members of the church listed. And this Excel file tells me how you got into the church. Did you come by baptism? Did you come by a statement of faith? Were you baptized in another Baptist church of like faith and order? And I can look that up and I can see where everybody in the church and how they got here. And I got all your names there. They didn't have that in the New Testament. And so when a person was removed from the church, they couldn't just push the delete key and ding, you're no longer on the church roll. They did it in a different way. They didn't have the church role, and so they practiced cutting off fellowship. And one of the things that they did was to cut off the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. Now, why would they do that? Because the Bible says that you're treating this person as an unbeliever. And there is no unbeliever. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not permitted to come to the Lord's table. You can't come to the Lord's Supper without being a believer. So they're treating this person as an unbeliever. And that was very easily recognizable in the church because when the supper was passed, they skipped over that person and they didn't allow them to partake of it. And that showed they're no longer in fellowship with the body. Well, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that only Christians can be disciplined. We don't have anything to do with disciplining people that are out in the world. We don't have the ability to deal with those people, and we're not even going to try to do that. In verse number 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in an epistle, that means in another letter, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must she needs go out of the world. You see, the only way that you can stop associating with people in the world who commit these kinds of sins, the only way that you can stop associating with the world is leave the world. How are you going to leave the world? Get in a spaceship. Well, if you get in the spaceship and leave the world, then make sure that Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock are Christians too, because if they're not, you're taking the world with you. You can't disassociate yourself from the world, but you most definitely can disassociate yourself from Christians who refuse to repent of their sins. Now, we're going to take a moment here to look at some of the things that Paul says are grounds for dismissal from the church. Some of the sins. Now, I hope you don't find yourself in this group, but verse number 11 has a list for us. 
This is not an exhaustive list, but it does include the types of sins that cause a Christian to be removed from fellowship. Here's what he says in verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. Now, let me read this to you from the Amplified Bible, and it'll help you to maybe to understand it a little bit better. But now I write to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of Christian brother, if he is known to be guilty of immorality. And that word there, remember, covers all kinds of sexual perversions. Immorality or greed or is an idolater, that is, whose soul is devoted to any object that usurps the place of God. Now, that's a very important statement right there. An idolater is not just somebody who bows down before an idol. An idolater is anyone who puts something in the place of God in their life, and they hold that higher than they do God. And that, that kind of brings the point home, doesn't it? It speaks to all of us. But he says, that is, whose soul is devoted to any object that usurps the place of God, or is a person with a foul tongue, railing, abusing, reviling, slandering, or a swindler or a robber. No, you must not so much as eat with such a person. One of the things that I find it very interesting is to go back and read the minutes of churches way back in the past, the minutes of business meetings, to find out how they deal with certain sins that are in the church. There was a time when our Baptist churches very definitely believed in church discipline. They were very concerned about moral issues and making sure that the church was pure. What I want to do right now, I want to read to you some minutes that are over 200 years old. These were taken from the forks of the Elkhorn Baptist Church in Kentucky. It was a church near uh, where I used to live. And these are the actual minutes of this church from 200 years ago. Second Saturday in March, 1805. The church met and after divine worship proceeded to business. A charge was brought against Sister Polly Edrington for frequenting, frequently giving her mother the lie and calling her a fool and for endeavoring by tattling to set several of the neighbors at strife with each other. She was excluded for the same. Second Saturday in January, 1807. After divine worship proceeded to business, complaint brought against Sister Esther Bulwars Whiney, first for saying that she thought it was her duty to serve her master and mistress, but since the Lord had converted her, she'd never believed that any Christian kept Negroes or slaves. Second, for saying she believed there were thousands of white people wallowing in hell for their treatment to Negroes, and she did not care if there was as many more. Referred to next meeting. Second Saturday in February, February 1807, after divine worship proceeded to business. The complaint referred last meeting against Sister Bulwar's whiny taken up. She is excluded for the same. Brother Gregory is appointed to cite the two young brother Palmers to our church meeting to answer the church's complaint for non-attendance. Second Saturday in October, 1807, after divine worship proceeded to business, complaint against Brother Daniel Brown for frolicking and dancing taken up and referred to next meeting. Took up the complaint, referred time after time, against Brother Benjamin Hickman for joining the Freemason Society and excluded him for the same. Second sat ooh, that's quiet. Second Saturday in December, second Saturday in December, 1880, after divine worship, proceeded to business. Took up the reference respecting Brother John Bohannon 
neglecting to attend church meetings. He came forward and gave his reasons for not attending the church. Vote, his reasons were not satisfactory. Also voted that his conduct and reasons before the church were worthy of exclusion. You think we're tough in Brian Baptist Church? If you'd been a member of a Baptist church back 200 years ago, there were lots of things for which they would exclude a member from fellowship if they were not following the Lord. Now, there was a time we weren't so worried about being politically correct and being tolerant over things. These people would not tolerate sin among their membership. Well, I have one last point that I want to make today, and it's a question. I want to ask this question. Does church discipline work? Now, we're told to do this. We're told to remove an an offending person from the church fellowship. Does that work? Well, I think really this story has a good ending. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, many people believe that Paul is referring to this very same incident that happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a follow-up to that. And so in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 8, it says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Now, what that means is that the church had voted to expel this person uh, from from, from the fellowship of the church. And apparently it worked because now Paul goes on. He says that contrariwise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love him. And so many Bible expositors believe that Paul is writing about that very same person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They expelled him from the membership of the church, but then that man, recognizing what he had done, he repented of his sin, he confessed it, and now Paul says, what you ought to do as a church body, you receive that person back into your fellowship again. That is the goal of church discipline. So here's the last statement for your listening sheet today. Following God's plan will always put us in right relationship with God and with each other. Church discipline is not a popular topic. This is not a pleasant subject. I doubt very seriously that any of you are going to go out today and, wow, what a sermon today. What a sermon that he preached today. I'm not expecting to receive any rewards, any awards from men for the sermon that I preached this morning. And you may be thinking right now, why did Pastor Smith deal with such a subject right here in the Sunday morning service on December the 16th, 2007? I want to tell you why. Because the Lord knows that there may be someone in our church who is guilty of the very things that we're talking about. And God is saying to us, I'm going to withhold my blessings I'm going to withhold giving you what a church needs to grow and to prosper because there's sin in the camp. And it very well may be that you as a Christian, you may find yourself involved in one of those sins that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 11. You may find yourself involved in that. And you may not have been here for Sunday night service or Wednesday night service if I preached this sermon then. But you are here today. And I want to tell you today that the very best thing that you can do for yourself and with your fellowship with God and the very best thing you can do for the church body as a whole is to repent, to confess your sin and forsake your sin and come back into fellowship with God again. We have been given responsibility in a church to keep our church pure. I said that tolerance is not a Christian virtue. When it comes to sin... 
Tolerance is not a Christian virtue. We want to keep our church pure. But we also recognize this, that whenever we have to exercise church discipline, that we want to do it with a proper attitude. We want to do it in love. We're concerned about people's souls, and we're concerned about their welfare and about the blessings of God in their lives. That's why I preach a sermon like this on Sunday morning, December 16th. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come for you today, and I realize, Lord, that this is not a message that most people were expecting to hear today. Many people may be surprised that I would preach such a message, but Lord, I do believe that you are behind this. You have given us a command to keep your church pure. We are to exercise discipline in our church. And Lord, we do want a holy, pure, chaste membership that can only be accomplished by you. It's never accomplished in us. We don't have the ability to live without sin, but we thank you for the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. We want this to be a holy body, and we want to be able to carry out your commission in this world. And then today, Lord, I want to pray for a person here who may not know you as Savior, and they're not even a part of the church. Help them to understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners from their sins. And if they will just put their faith and their trust in you, they can know a free pardon of their sins, and one day they'll go at home to be at home in heaven with you. Would you bless in this time of, inf- of invitation as we sing, Jesus paid it all. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.